Good Saturday morning to you, Sarah Hepler. Good Saturday morning to you, Nancy Rommelman. So when you were little, did you and your brother sit in front of the television and watch cartoons with like and eat an entire box of cereal each? And if so, what was the cereal? Okay, well, I had a mom that really uh, watched our television consumption and our junk food consumption. Oh boy. So I am going to tell you that during my summers in uh, the Valhalla of Kalamazoo, Michigan, where my aunt did not have these uh, such such strict rules about consumption. Uh, my brother and I sat around <laughs> watching, uh, yeah, all, television all morning, and the food was peanut butter Captain Crunch. Oh, Captain Crunch was big. My brother was a Captain Crunch eater. I never liked Captain Crunch. I can call up the taste of it right now. I still don't like it. I liked, um, I like like Apple Jacks, Lucky Charms, or this cereal that I was like such a grown up cereal, probably for like constipated grown ups, but it was called Fortified Oat Flakes. And I loved this cereal. And they, they don't make it. They shut up. They don't make it anymore. It kind of tastes like life cereal, but not as sugary. Um, or it did. I think it's been around since the 80s. But uh, we used to watch, we had one television, of course, and um, we would fight. Because I really wanted to watch Land of the Lost. And I loved Land of the Lost. Okay, thank you very much. All interesting, smart people loved Land of the Lost. Um, and uh, he wanted to watch, I don't know, something something more destructo. Um, I also loved, and if, if any of our listeners can find me this, I would pay them for it. I really loved um, Davy and Goliath, which was that claymation uh, Mormon or Methodist church. Uh, I loved this show. I think I actually watched an episode like five or so years ago. I still love the show. And I would really like a Davy and Goliath t-shirt or ashtray or something like that. So if anybody can find me one, uh, I will, uh, I'll trade you a book. I'll send you a, a signed copy of To the Bridge. So there's Davian a- Davy and Goliath came on on Sunday morning in Dallas and I would watch it. You know, I don't think it was one of my favorites, but that, you know, Sunday morning was, was slim pickings. And I definitely like, it was definitely regular viewing for me. I have a very vague memories of it though, but it was yeah. like a claymation thing. It was claymation. And it was always just so, so nice. There was like the nice little lesson, you know, and everything was nice where Davy lived in Davy's house and he was nice to his sister. And it's just, you know, it was nice. It was nice. So it's Saturday morning here. It is, we usually start at the crack of dawn here, but it's 9.30. I think one of the reasons, so I, I just did a 10-day reporting trip. We'll put some links to the pieces I wrote from um, Oklahoma and Kansas, one for Barry Weiss's site and one for palomamedia.com. Um, and I I like being on the road. I like getting in the car. We've talked about this. We love getting in the car. We love going to the stories, meeting the people, crashing in your hotel room. All was good. I got to the airport uh, in Tulsa a couple days ago, and the minute I got through uh uh, security. I was like, I, I need to go sleep. I, I need to sleep. Right. And I think I'm still, uh, I'm just, uh, still recuperating a little bit. So you were crashing. Yeah. I mean, just a, this weird physical sensation, like the veil of sleep just dropped upon me as soon as I got into the airport. And I think, um, so yeah, we're, we're starting a little later. It's nine 30 on a Saturday morning here, which is a little later than it might we're be. Like college, uh, frat boys. Yeah. Um, can I tell you something 
that kind of meaningful that happened to me yesterday. Yes. Uh, so I, I, I want to start this story by saying that I have had a really rough week writing. And, um, you know, I don't know what writing is like for you or anybody else, but I go through, I think, cycles where sometimes writing comes really fast for me. I'm almost scary fast, you know, almost like the writing is telling itself. Mm-hmm. And those are the most beautiful, wonderful, yep. spiritual experiences. I, I have, um, then I, I will get stuck in mud mm-hmm. and it's like words are just, I, I can't, pulling them out is uh, physically painful or it will take me days to come up with sentences. I'm, I'm really amazed by how slow I can get. And one of the challenges of this is that I tend to mentally start to crater. Sure. You know, sure. what am I doing? I'm 25 years into this. What, you know, why did I think I had anything to say? Um, you know, so I really, really start to spin out and, you know, I'll, I'll be isolated Um not really talking to anybody, not really going out because I'm trying to get this thing done. And the more I kind of latch onto it, the less it's happening. So this is just like a really bad, frustrating cycle for me. And this happened all last week. And yesterday I I took a break and I got an email and the email came through my website. So I have a personal website where people can just send me, you know, correspondence. And do you, do you have a different, you see, I have that too. And I have a different email address there. So I know when it comes, I know it's coming from the website. Yeah, mine. Yeah. I know it's coming from the website because it's like tagged in a certain way. Okay. So I knew it was. And so the subject line was my goodness. Mm. Um, and I open it up and it says, uh, you amaze me with your writing skills. Keep writing. My oh my, you have got to be one of the best writers in the country, which I'm, that's obviously not true. But then I look and see who it's from. It's from my high school English teacher. (gasps) Oh, Sarah. And I just started crying. Oh, Sarah. Did, did he or she She. recognize at that time that you kind of were I mean, I know you from a pretty young age, you knew you wanted to be writing. Yeah. Uh, did she recognize that at that time? Yeah, this was a wonderful, this was my high school English teacher. I had her for junior and senior English because she uh, changed jobs during <laughs> that time. I to follow you. Uh-huh. Yeah, exactly. Um, and she was one of my favorite teachers. Uh, you know, my eighth grade English teacher was one of the most transformative teachers I ever had that really made me believe that I could be a writer. Um, and this high school English teacher was really wonderful. Um, her class was always a safe place for me. She was really helped me understand how to be a better reader too. Um, you know, and she was somebody that in the, in, in, um, I went to a pretty conservative high school in Dallas, uh, you know, but she was always kind of like dangling these ideas of like, you know, more dangerous themes of, of, of sex and violence and, you know, all the things that literature talks about, you know, and she made these stories really exciting. Um, she was 
very encouraging of me in, in my writing. And I have thought about her so many times over the years. And for somebody that was so influential for me during those years to just randomly reach out yesterday, it just, I don't know, it was just the loveliest feeling that I had made her proud. She has, I think, I don't know if we have any teachers in our audience. I hope we do. I love teachers. Um, but I think that, that it's, it's an incredibly hard job. And I'm sure that as in all jobs, you focus sometimes on the things that you get wrong or don't do right. But I think you miss sometimes the profound influence you have on people. I certainly am somebody that was shaped by my teachers and, uh, that was just, it was just the coolest thing. So in terms of writing, um, we all, I, I think the thing that you have on your side that I have on my side when you've been writing for so long is that, you know, you've done this before. I don't know right. if anybody, you know, everybody has common like dreams or nightmares. Like there's the teeth dream, your teeth are falling out. Uh, one dream that I haven't had in a while, but I used to get fairly frequently was I would be on the, the top of this like crazily high spire, like 900 foot spire. I'd be like on this little teeny, teeny platform and I'd be looking down into the abyss and every time saying, well, I know I've gotten out of this before, so I guess I can do it again. <laughs> or, But you're terrified. And the thing about writing is that sometimes it is, it is literally just like flying through you. You are, yeah. when I'm doing it, I find I'm, I'm actually talking out very softly, very, very softly. And not every word just like, oh, it's just like flying out of your fingers. Mm. And then there are the days where that I now think of them as shuffling garbage. You sit at your yeah. laptop and you spend eight hours or, or probably less because you're getting up from the laptop 5,000 times to pluck your eyebrows or mm -hmm. make another cup of coffee. Um, and you are shoveling garbage. It, it, that's exactly what it feels like. And you, nothing, every sentence is dead. It is, I think mud is very good. It's like pulling dead rocks out of mud. Mm -hmm. And then you get up in the morning and you're able to make something of it. And it, it just, you learn when you've been writing this long, that's part of it sometimes. Part of it is shoveling garbage. So I don't get afraid of the shoveling garbage anymore. I mean, it's unpleasant, but you know you're going to get there. Um, I also noticed like I'm working on a, on a pretty big essay right now that I kind of been procrastinating because I had this other work to do. And so I sat down yesterday. I was like, oh, you know, you're not going to do anything good to it. So just, but open it, spend an hour with it. Just, just, mm -hmm. just like get it a little bit tidier. And of course I got it a lot tidier because it's just the, like opening the door and not being, you know, kind of afraid to confront this stuff. Um, we, neither you nor I, I mean, I didn't really study writing, um, I don't have a journalism degree. Almost no one I know who's a journalist has, has a journalism. I do not have a journalism degree. No, we don't. Nobody does. I mean, I know, I think I, I can think of one person I know that I haven't worked with in 10 years who has a journalism degree and she's older than we are. Um, but I, and I don't read writing books, but I think there's one we both enjoyed. I think you said you did too. And that was Stephen King on writing. I loved and that book. Yeah. It, and I, I actually listened to it on on tape, he narrates it. I, I highly recommend it because it's it's part memoir, it's part writing. It's very, very practical. And yet there's also this weird, I don't know if you would call it superstitious or spiritual, like how he needs to set himself up to write. And that's really true. Like you don't, you're never going to write a book in the margins. I'm sorry. If you think you're going to like write a 
amazing book. Like, oh, I'll just, I don't know. Every, when I get to it, I'll do it. No, you got to set it up. You got to set up time to do it. And he does that. Um, um, I think he talks about how. like his structure is like he writes four hours a day and he reads four hours a day. And then he takes a long walk. Uh, the, the walking is key. When I wrote To the Bridge, I was writing it at, out in Manzanita on the coast in Oregon. And I would I would pack in like three walks a day. And those were like, those were my breaks. And it, it worked. I think I said this on the podcast once. I wrote something like 150 pages in two weeks, which is bananas. Okay, that's what? a lot of writing. But uh, but I'd also been, okay, here's my, my catchphrase lately. 90% of life is prep. It is. And even if you can't be like doing something that's brilliant on the page, you can be organizing, you can be collating, you can make cool folders in cool colors, which is like productive procrastination so that when you get there to where you're actually doing the work, you've already set it up for yourself. And then the last thing I have to say about writing is something I read many, many years ago in The New Yorker. It was Richard Ford who wrote The Sports Writer. Uh, Have you read The Sports Writer? I have. Okay. So I'm I'm not a fast reader, but I'm not a slow reader. That is a very, pretty short paperback. I was reading, it's probably 300 pages. And my husband, at the time, he's like, he wouldn't necessarily notice this, but the book was still by the bed, like eight months later, this little paperback. He's like, are you still reading that? I was like, it is so painful to me to read this book. I could, I could take like three pages at a time. I couldn't do it. It was, it was, it devastated me so much. In any case, Richard Ford writing in, in the New Yorker about his late friend, Raymond Carver, the writer. And, um, Ford was stuck. He was stuck in the mud. He was not, he's like, I'm writing, I'm not writing well. I'm writing shit. And Carver Mm -hmm. said to him, Hey, write badly for a while. And I never forgot that. And I have given that advice to people, especially like, you know, younger writers who might not, or people that are just starting to write. And I just say, Hey, Go ahead, write badly for a while. Who cares? Yeah. I mean, no one sees our first drafts, right? I mean, you just write like crap and then just fix it. Fixing is in the beauty. That's where you find it. So, why was the sports writer so painful for you? I vague, I have a vague memory um, that, like, I read that back in college, I think, and that it was sort of a dark vision of men. Is I don't. Okay, I I don't have a great retention for books or movies or anything. I'm just, I don't, I've never have. But here's what I remember. I remember that the narrator was trying to tell the story while not telling the story. Mm. Because the pain in his life was so intense that he was, so it's like working on, you know, at least two levels. And I just was like, ow, ow. Ow. I, I don't I don't know if I read it today if I'd have the same reaction mm-hmm. but I did and um yeah I I if, if people cannot can let us know in the comments um if they've if they've had that experience or a book that they've had that experience with that it's just so painful and I don't mean you know I did not read this book called um a little life right. which I guess was quite popular it had this really gruesome cover image of this person whose face was like in a rictus of pain. Or I orgasm. Never- you couldn't really tell. It was a very mm-hmm. strange image. I think it's called the X. I forget what it is. Um, yeah. This is a I, book by Hanya Yanagahara. I didn't read it. I didn't really want to read it. It's weird. Like the cover actually turned me off. It felt too deliberately provocative. And I was like, I don't want to, I don't want to do it. And that's not the writer's fault. I mean, they, they well, no, the writer uh, fought for that cover very hard. Okay, the so, the publishing company did not want that cover either. She believed but, that it was the perfect cover. Well, that makes sense because the book as, as 
I understand it. Again, I have not read the book. My daughter tried to read it. She said, I can't, I can't, I can't read this. Um, but it was covered, I believe, in the tr the trauma myth. Is that what that article I keep referring mm -hmm. to? And it was apparently the book just like piled on and on and on and on and on and on and on the trauma that this character suffered. That's right. And in order to I guess, I don't know, that's the point. Like this po person ho heroically survives it, but it, it, it was trauma porn, uh, the way it was described at least. And I think my daughter sort of had that same um, reaction. And I'm I'm not interested in that writing. I actually kind of makes me um, angry. Um, I would much rather read a Richard Ford writing The Sports Writer where, they're, where the character is very much trying to not, show his or her trauma. Um, but it's all the more affecting because this person is just trying so hard to, to present a, um, a face that I'm surviving without just like, without, I, and sentimentalizing is the wrong word, but just like without, um, exaggerating or, or whatever, I'm, I'm not getting my, my language here right, but I think, you know, what I mean, I mean, we see this in articles too, you know, stare at my pain, stare at my pain, 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 pain. I'm in pain, pain, pain. It's like, okay, well, I, 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 that's not, that's not the kind of stories I want to read. I did read A Little Life. Um, it's, uh, it's about a group of gay men, uh, I think in New York. And I, the writer, the writing is really good. I mean, like this, the scenes and the observe, like she's a, like sentence by sentence, she's a really good writer but I couldn't take that book because it was unrelenting in the sort of accumulation of traumas that were happening. I mean, they were just, to me, outlandish. I will say that book was championed by several people I knew as life-changing. And I just, so I, I obviously it was very important for a lot of people and it became a sensation. And so I'm, I'm you know, always hesitant to, like, I don't want to, Bash books that um, no. are well written and and change people's lives uh, because they're so meaningful. I just you know to me it was like music and a frequency I couldn't hear. You know I just I, like I don't get it. Why do you? What was the purpose? Was there a larger purpose to um, the unrelenting? I mean it, it's like torture. I, I at, at a certain point. I mean I think there's like amputation. No, I don't. I don't. I don't know. The, the character's name was Jude. I don't. I, you know. And I, 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 I don't know. Okay. All right. There we go. Um, so this is interesting. We're, we're going to talk about a couple of things, but maybe we kind of led into our second topic first, which is uh, Jonah Hill. Ah. Which is a, you know, very, very short piece. I'm going to let you describe the piece because um, you were the one that sent it to me. Yeah, sure. I became aware of this, this story that had come out this week, which is that Jonah Hill, the actor that we know from Superbad, 21 Jump Street, Wolf of Wall Street, um, has announced that he's not going to be doing any more publicity around his movies. Um, he has been in therapy for a number of years and is working on a documentary about that experience. It's coming Which out at a, Sundance. A funny name. Yeah, it's called Stutz. I don't know why. Yeah. I have no idea why. It's something is therapist or something. Yeah. Um, and he released a, uh, a letter to Deadline. 
And he says, through this journey of self-discovery with this film, I have come to the understanding that I've spent nearly 20 years experiencing anxiety attacks, which are exacerbated by media appearances and public-facing events. Uh, He goes on to say, you won't see me out there promoting this film or any of my upcoming films while I take this important step to protect myself. If I made myself sicker by going out there and promoting it, I wouldn't be acting true to myself or to the film. Okay. So, you know, I, in some ways this is, um, this is in line with some of the things that we've been seeing recently around elite performers kind of taking radical steps to protect their mental health. I mean, one of the ones I think about is, uh, was it Simone Biles? Yeah. Who decided not to, who decided not to compete, uh, in the Olympics or, yeah, because she said she got the twisties. It, she just was going to psych herself out. And there's, you know, those sort of controversial. Um, people are like, listen, you've got to understand if someone who does these incredible things that could result in them breaking their neck like 400 times a day, then you have to respect their fear, which I, I definitely understand. Um, and then there were other people like, well, you know, she did compete for this her entire life and now she's going to duck out. Which I also understand. The one thing that I didn't kind of understand um, is the just outsized praise that she received sure. for leaving, that that was the heroic, she was a hero. And I think she was actually named like athlete of the year, I don't know, Sports Illustrator or someplace. And she was for actually, you know, taking the time to give herself this self-care. Well, I think she's absolutely within her rights. I, I mean, I may not understand it if I trained to be an Olympic athlete for, you know, 20 years and then bowing out, but she's within her rights to do that. I don't know that it makes a whole lot of sense to make that the celebratory moment, but in any case. Yeah, I, I, I think I would agree with that. I think probably, again, this is part of an overcorrection towards people that were, you know, going on, you know, taking drugs and sort of, you know, over medicating their anxiety or their pain uh, in order to participate. And at the point that they stop, maybe stop doing that and start paying attention to what is going on in their body, it's telling them they can't, they can't necessarily do this. So, um, so, th- so this is what Jonah Hill has said. And, and, you know, it makes a certain, I mean, I, I would say it makes sense. I mean, especially if you're doing a documentary that's very much about this same subject, uh, the fact that you get panic attacks when you're doing these events. Look, you know, press is, uh, especially I would think for an actor, you know, is is got to be like a mind numbing and demoralizing sort of uh, conveyor yes. belt, right? Yes. And it's always been seen as just part of the job. Um, but here we have somebody who, you know, like I don't know, I don't know what kind of kind of issues he has with with uh, his. I mean, this is somebody that has been made fun of for his, for his weight. We've seen his weight fluctuate dramatically. Um, he's been a punching bag, both on screen and off screen for these things. I don't know what, what, you know, being in these kind of environments does to him. So, you know, look, I, I, I think it's an interesting, um, development. 
right? And I wouldn't be surprised if we see more people do it. I don't think it'll go well. I, I don't know that it will go well for his career. I don't know that it it will go well for the movie. But I, I think it's something that you should be able to do in the same way that like, you know, like I, I just like writers having to be on Twitter, for instance. You know, like if you don't want to be on Twitter, don't be on Twitter. But then you take your lumps for not being on Twitter. I... <sighs> So anybody that's worked in as a journalist, at some point you encounter, you know, the movie star, whether it's, you know, it's Tom Hanks or Brad Pitt or whatever, they're, they're, they're put in a studio and they like 30 journalists walk through and ask them questions about this movie so that they could get their sound bits for Yahoo or Time Magazine or whatever it is, right? And it's, it, it's just sort of, it's, it's wrote, it's, it's not particularly provocative or interesting. It can't be interesting for the star particularly, but it's seen as part of what they need to do. So we also are in an environment where there's a billion ways to promote things now. It's not just like you're going to be on like the nightly news. You can there's 4000 platforms where your promotional ability can be used and obviously everybody needs content. Okay. Here's my question. I wonder if what he put out there is sort of the it's sort of the equivalent of like the artist's statement, which is something let me just back up a second. So a number of years ago, my daughter, who has, has a friend who's actually an amazing artist, she's un, she's unbelievable. She works in a lot of forms, and I love her. She's like a daughter to me. And she said, Nancy, I'm, I'm doing this thing. I'm applying for this thing, and they need an artist's statement. And I'm like, what's well, an artist's statement? Because I'm old, and that's not something that I would ever have to do. And um, she's like, well, it's where you have to sort of like describe your motivation. What you do is like, well, just show them your work. I mean, show them the painting and the video and the thing that you wrote. Like, that's that's all you need. And she's like, unfortunately, that's not what you need anymore, right? You need to also present this, I don't know, this package in order to be, I don't know, it's now a, new, a part of the new legitimacy. I just wonder if Jonah Hill, if it's possible in 2022 to make a movie and let the movie come out. Mm-hmm. That's it. Like, is the statement necessary? Well, it might be necessary for the producers. It might be necessary for, I don't know, there might be demands. I wonder if if he felt the need to do it. I mean, because I'd be all totally down with him not feeling the need to do it. Like, just let me see the work. You know, there's always that argument, like how much do we need to know about artists' lives? And there are some some artists, you know nothing about their lives. You do not know where they live. You do not know if they're married and have children. And if the work, like, impacts you, like, for me, Ed Ruscha, I've got his uh, parts per trillion painting uh, tattooed on my left inner forearm. I don't need to know about his life. It does. I don't care. His work is so profound to me. Mm. I mean, if I run into, I did read an article about him a number of years ago. I think it was in Vanity Fair. It was interesting. It was fine. But I don't need to know. I wonder, too, if there's going to be, I'm going to bet you that more people are going to read that statement from Jonah Hill than are actually going to see his his, uh, film. And so Mm -hmm. now now that's our conception of this person. Well, okay. I mean, I'm maybe more interested in, in the art. What do you, what do you think? Uh, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm actually looking forward to this movie. Uh, I, I think the question of how much of your of your 
personal life you want to share as an actor has always been a, a fraught one. Some of my favorite a- actors, I don't know much about at all. I mean, I always think about Daniel Day Lewis. You know, I don't know a damn thing about him. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of my other favorite artists is Tom Waits. Another we've talked about him before. You know, somebody that I really don't know much about his his private life. That that his his contribution has been art. Um, I don't know. Uh, I yeah, I don't know that I have any. Yeah, I wonder how hard that is to the one example I give. You remember when um, Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie got together? It was kind of like, you know, explosive. And there was a time, there was a time when you literally could not walk into the supermarket without, you know, two of the three magazines having pictures of them and their kids and their problems. I mean, it was just like, it was a constant barrage. And then they split up. You didn't see it anymore. Like they were not on the covers of things. So what's that about? Some, somehow the Brangelina machine was party to the PR. They had to be. And then they weren't together and they weren't. So something was driving that besides just, you know, how is our appetite for, how is our appetite for movie stars even, you know, wedded? Well, it's wedded through publicity. And a lot of, obviously a lot of actors do want publicity, not just to forward their career, but because they like being in the limelight. I mean, hi, this is sort of axiomatic. Right. Oh, there we go. Bingo. Um, so I just, I, I think it's, it's fine that he, he released this statement. Um, it doesn't, it doesn't make me more or less. It probably actually probably makes me a little less interested in the work. I but uh, maybe I'll see it. We'll see. You, you you'll well, see it. Then. Yeah, celebrities are carriers of our story. You know, they tell the stories of the current moment, and that's part of why they spark our imagination. Uh, Brad and Angelina were both a story about passionate love and passionate disillusionment of love, passionate loss of love. Um, and Jonah Hill is telling a story about a, a generation of people that are being a little bit more open with their anxiety and a little bit more open in terms of <clears throat> their emotions and their fragility and the mixed bargain of that. You know, does this change how people see him? Um, does this create a, a more stable you know, foundation on which to build a career or a, a less stable one. I, I, I don't know. But we'll certainly see. it's something that a lot of young people are experiencing as well. I mean, I imagine that this would not be unfamiliar to somebody that worked in college or, you know, or with with a younger generation in general. I think their, their ability or their quickness with which they, they talk about their anxiety and depression Um is really unprecedented. So is it then a case almost like it's like, oh, movie stars, they're just like you and me, Mm -hmm. you know? And if that is the case, the cynic in me is like, well, is that part of the reason why they released the statement? You know? Oh, because Because you're like, you're creating a commonality with your audience. Yeah, you know, I, I, yeah, I don't, I don't know, but I, 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 I do think that there I was. Mean, I'm sure it's true. I'm not saying I'm not saying they're ginning it up to like to like to to. No. But it's like, well, you know, you know, Jonah, this is something a lot of young people struggle with, and they're our audience, so maybe you want to be frank about it because it's just going to make them feel more. Um, uh, 
that that they're not alone and even look at these this famous person who I admire and also maybe that's not going to be bad for the movie. Well, I suspect it came from a sincere place and I also think yeah. that there is a reason why a work like this, which is a documentary about therapy, uh, probably directed specifically at men who have been resistant to a culture of therapy. Um, it's a pretty, and, funny, pretty funny meme. Yeah, what? right. Yeah. All the things that men will do to avoid <laughs> therapy. therapy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, and, and why it is being, uh, you know, why this statement is coming out now. Like there, there's an awareness that it was going to be probably mostly positively received. I wouldn't imagine he got, I'm sure people said snarky things, but I think for most people were sort of like, Hey, good for you. Like, like your mental health is important, which is something that uh, as a society, we haven't really always held at a premium. No. Um, I'm wondering if we should maybe jump over to our our main topic before we get to our delicious uh, our delicious uh, couple at the end. Oh sure, yeah. So um, some of you know a writer online and also like a performer and a podcaster and an interesting person who also had a little uh, a little part on uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm once, named Bridget Fetisy. I think that's the name she gave herself. She went through some pretty rough stuff when she was younger. Um, I should premise to say Bridget is a friend. Uh, We've met two or three times. Um, I've had her uh, on my podcast in the studio once. Um, She has a new baby, new little baby girl who I crocheted a baby blanket for. And um, she put out an essay earlier in the week called I Regret Being a Slut. And I read it. Bridget's a very good writer and she's also extremely like scoured down to the honesty. Like she's not trying to like make something else here. She's going to tell you how it is. It is, um, I think the piece is, I wouldn't say it's painful. I would say it is just so damn recognizable. Um, even I, I, I would say for, for a lot of women, Maybe men too. I'm gonna probably, though they wouldn't. They wouldn't admit it. Um, we're going to link it, and uh, hopefully, we're also going to have uh, Bridget on to have her talk about it a little bit. But I thought we'd talk a little bit about it today because uh, Madam Sarah Hepla has written in a different way about this topic in Blackout, yeah. which is your book, by the way. When I was traveling uh, through. Kansas, I mentioned your podcast and they're like uh, to someone who I'm now forgetting who it was, who said, "Oh yeah, she wrote Blackout. That was a great book." So you're just famous, just in case you didn't you didn't know. You're not just your English teacher. It was not your English teacher. Can I tell else. you this this funny thing happened um, yesterday too? I was in. Um, I'm going to violate my own anonymity, which I do all <laughs> the time, by saying that I was in an AA meeting, and I was sitting. Uh, this is the first time this has ever happened where I sat down at an AA meeting, and the woman across from me was reading my book and I was like oh she brought it for me to autograph you know because she knows yeah (laughs) so afterward I was like yeah hey you've got my book and she was like I'm sorry now (laughs) oh god oh (laughs) she's like what you wrote this and then she was started freaking out and then other people started freaking out and it was yeah yeah. and the 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 host of the meetings like Sarah chill (laughs) No, I didn't do it during the meeting, obviously. Yeah, no. I'm going to interrupt this meeting. Um, Okay, so yeah, I I have written about this in Blackout a little bit. And um, I wondered, can I I read a little bit of this? Please, 
please. Okay. Um, so she says, if I'm being honest with myself, of the dozens of men I've been with, at least the ones I remember, I can only think of a handful I don't regret. The rest I would put in the category of casual, which I would define as sex that is either meaningless or mediocre or both. If I get really honest with myself, I'd say most of these usually drunken encounters left me feeling empty and demoralized and worthless. I wouldn't have said that at the time, though. At the time, I would have told you I was liberated, even while I was trying to drink away the sick feeling of rejection when, most of my, when my most recent hookup didn't call me back. At the time, I would have said one-night stands made me feel emboldened, but in reality, I was using sex like a drug, trying unsuccessfully to fill a hole inside me with men, pun intended. Uh, I'll read a, just a tiny little bit more. Um, even more damaging was what I told myself in order to justify the fact that I was disposable to these men. I told myself I didn't care. I didn't care when a man ghosted me. I didn't care when he left in the middle of the night or hinted that he wanted to leave. The, walk of sh the walks of shame, the blackouts, the anxiety, the lie I told myself for decades was, I'm not in pain, I'm empowered. So, so that gives you a little bit of sense of where she's coming from here. Bridget is a little bit younger than me. We came of age around the same time. Um, one of the things I really relate to in this is this idea of, you know, turning down the volume on the idea that I care. I always felt like alcohol to me was an, I don't care drug. You know, it was a, it was a, it was an elixir that I took to detach from the feelings of sadness or estrangement, um, that I, that I got for not having the kind of connected relationship that I wanted. You know, it's really interesting to me in my own sexual history. Um, I had a, a serious boyfriend in high school and I really never drank. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, I drank in high school, but I never drank around sex with him. Uh, it just, that wasn't necessary. Mm -hmm. when I started drinking with sex was in college because by college there was this idea that there was kind of more of a fleeting interaction. There was, there was adventure seeking and there was also, you know, like I, I, I always remember, um, this rude awakening when I got to college. Cause I just thought I was going to find my next boyfriend, you know, like, like who's going to be the next guy that occupies the next two years of my life or whatever. And I was hooking up with this guy one night. I might've told you this story. Um, and I said, uh, you know, what are we doing? Like, what is, what does this mean? And he was like, uh, this means that I'm 19 and I'm having fun. <laughs> And I was like, oh, that's the first time I realized that like 19 for and having fun for boys was very different than 19 and having fun for me. Because 19 and having fun for me was us being a couple and, you know, walking alongside each other and studying together and cuddling on the couch and being intimate. And it 
was one of the, the, the points, like, I just remember this feeling starting in college that like, oh, oh, boys get to define the rules now. And because, because of your availability? Because, because the kind of fun that they wanted to have, uh, which was felt to me like sort of short-term interactions, or we didn't have the word hookups, mm. um, but, but what would eventually become known as sort of hookup culture um, was, was suddenly the dominant, was suddenly the dominant, um, sort of structure. Like, like I did have friends that had long-term relationships. I, I only managed one of them late in, in my college, but most of my college was these, these sort of short-term flings and guys that I really wanted to turn into a relationship, but I never could, you know, pit, turn that corner, you know, I had a different experience in terms of like, so, you know, one thing our listeners may or may not know, I've spent most of my adult life with two men. Okay. So my daughter's dad and my husband. So like really, I just didn't have the years to have a lot of, of hooking up a little bit between uh, the time I left my daughter's dad when I was 30 and I met my husband when I was like 32, there was like a two year period, something like that, where I, you know, I had some boyfriends. So I'll go back to what you're talking about, like college years. Um, I remember um, I was obviously sexually active. Um, for me, it would, I, if I didn't have someone that I was with or that I liked or that I was crushing on, I remember this whole whole freshman year in college, I I had, I was crushing so heavily on this guy. We stared at each other like the whole time. And then as soon as we got together, I was like, yeah, whatever, I'm, I'm ready to, to move on terrible person. But um, I would remember like going through the days and going to parties and then just deciding like that night, that night I was going to get laid. And I would kind of scan the room and like pick somebody out and do it. <laughs> and then I was, I've kind of felt I didn't want anything more with that person, which was weird because they'd be the ones sort of like, hi, the next day, hi, how are you? And I'd be like, I'd be like, oh, whatever. Like, no, actually sometimes I'd be like, I cannot believe I slept with this person last night. I mean, like, it's just, it's just, it's just, it's ridiculous. Now I, let's preface, I didn't do this that much. I think freshman year, I did it twice. And one person repeatedly, it was literally, oh my God, this is so bad. It was like booty call. I would be in my room at midnight and, oh, this is so bad. I, I Boy, I've definitely never told this story. Um, and if you were on campus late at night and you didn't want to walk across campus, you could, I would sometimes just walk across. It wasn't that far to where his his fraternity was from my dorm. But one time I was just like, oh, security will drive you. I was like, okay. So I got security to drive me over there just so I could bang. Um, and <laughs> I did that. Um, yeah, I don't. And I don't think that had to do so much with like, I, I actually, it's definitely not I'm 19 and having fun. That would not be what it was. It was simply a desire for that kind of connection. That kind of connection is not, it, it, it was definitely not as meaningful as a connection I might have standing on the line at the, at the cafeteria. I would have a much better and more interesting conversation that I wanted to take to other places 
or with some of my work or doing a play or doing sports. But it was just something that I don't know if it was physically, you know, I'm, I'm writing something right now talking about like when your libido hits, when you're like 13 or whatever it is, and you literally, you you can't keep your hands off yourself. You're just like, <sighs> and then you're like older and you just, it wasn't horniness. That's wrong. It's not like, oh my God, I'm horny. I want to get laid, which I'm, I'm sure is totally legitimate for a lot of people. It was just a need. It's funny to fill that hole as Bridget would say, just a different, like I've got, here's this, this menu of life choices you want right now. This is the one I want tonight. As a 19 year old girl, it was not, I could basically just pick what I wanted, get it done, and then take that off the list. I'm not saying it made me feel great the next day. It didn't make me feel particularly bad, mm-hmm. but it wasn't kind of anything. It was kind of nothing, which really it shouldn't be because as we get older, and I'm not saying like not every sexual encounter needs to be sacred, and it certainly is not going to be for most of us. But once you actually understand what sex can be, then you you do realize, or I kind of realize, like, it's kind of just a waste. You're just, like, taking this thing that can be so incredibly beautiful, and you can hold it, and it's in your hands, and it's just this very, very amazing thing between you and another person, and you're just kind of, like, I don't know, kicking it around on the sidewalk. And um, do I regret it? Like, no, I don't regret it, but it's not really anything. I can't really say besides this conversation I'm having with you, it didn't really, it didn't really do anything. Yeah. That's, uh, that, that's similar to how I feel by which I mean. So when I got sober, I had, um, a couple of, or one in particular, very meaningful relationship that was, very connected sexually. And one of the things it made me realize was the pale imitation of that, that I had been doing during my drinking years. When I was in New York and I was there for my early thirties, um, one of the things about me during those years is that if a certain amount of time passed and I hadn't had sex, I started to get almost like a, like a claustrophobic or like tightening throat constricting. It wasn't horniness. No. It was a terror that I was not desirable or that there was something wrong with me or I was going to be alone. I mean, it was something else that was going on. And so I needed to let go of that feeling. And so these collisions that would happen and most of my sort of most reckless uh, kind of most detached relation um, relationships, sexual encounters happened in New York during those six years. You know, it's just like they don't, they don't like. Were you drinking then? Very heavily, very heavily, yeah, very heavily. And and I would, I, I don't, I would have. It was very suggestible. You know, I remember I was in a. Like I was in a bar once um, with a friend of mine and these guys were talking to me and they were like, I don't know what I said to them, probably something really outrageous. And this group of guys was like, hey, we're going to go out to Queens. Why don't you come in our truck? And I was like, I told my friend, I was like, hey, I'm going to leave with them in their truck. And she was like, no, you absolutely are no, not. No, you are not. No, you are no, not. You are. No, and, not. And, you know, but that is, I had this sort of like all 
guards down. Um, I had no, you know, I just sort of like flung myself into the night and it was like, let's see what happens. And then when something did happen, I didn't really care. And I think that's probably what made me so sad when I got sober was this awareness of like, I was so dissociated from whatever my body was doing or what I was doing. Sometimes I didn't even remember it. Yeah. Um, And so I have come to find, you know, that sex for me is just much, much better in the context of a relationship. And I think that for most women... It is because of the ways that our orgasm works or the ways that our body works and and also just that so much about what is valuable to me about sex is that ineffable, the ineffable connection, the chemistry, the staring into the eyes, that that, that sort of stuff. And it's not something that I'm able to get so much in casual sex. And so, and, and, and that has meant that I have to go much longer between those times. Although I will say, I mean, I've also had been able to have, to have sex that was not in the context of a committed relationship, but it was with somebody that I felt connected to. So question for you. So in these like sort of random encounters when you're either a teenager or uh, in those years in New York, was the sex itself sexually pleasurable? So one of the things that would happen when I would get drunk was that I would kind of get spazzy and very... (laughs) you know, like everything would kind of like my emotions would come out and I would laugh and I would cry. And I always sort of, I do think that for me, those nights were a kind of release. I think of them as almost like a kind of wilding. Like I would get very wild, um, you know, but I was numb. I was physically numb. Oh, you know what's uh, similar to is when I would get really drunk and just dance the shit out of like the dance floor, like just Mm -hmm. absolutely go wild. But that's a that's a great release. I do that sometimes. I mean, you just like you can be out there for three or five hours and just release. So I don't remember um, a few times. So I don't know how many hookups I'm talking about. Ten, twelve over a career of like young twenties or something, and um. Most of them, once I got, you know, like I so bad, like I found my prey. Now I have him. And we go do something. And they, in my experience, were very interested in like you're alone in this like little, you know, it's just you and this person, you're breathing the same air, and they want to make you feel good. They're gonna like pull out their bag of tricks. Of course, like nobody has that many good tricks when you're 21, but whatever. And I would be like locked in my head, like whatever. Like, it was not pleasurable. This was, like, not orgasm time. Mm -hmm. Except for, like, one particular person who, for some reason, like, we've talked about DNA singing. It wasn't DNA so much with this guy. I don't want to kid with him. But, man, did our bodies know what the fuck to do. Like, oh, hey. And that was, like, 
that was super big fun. And that was great. And actually, now I come to think of it, I kind of developed a crush on him. He was very shy and whatever, strange guy. But um, the sexual encounters were not really sexually that pleasurable. Um, And that's kind of like when you're like in your locked in your head. Sure. It wasn't, I can't say that they were, again, it's like, I don't regret it, but it's like, it's kind of like nothing. It's just kind of like uh, a junk food kind of. Yeah. Thing. I would compare the sex that I was having back then to a kind of junk food. Yeah. Yeah. So, which, you know, is interesting because, you know, I've been reading a whole lot lately about hookup and sex. We wrote that, we that incredible uh, Tinder article that was in New York Magazine. Highly, highly recommend. I, I loved that piece. Allison Davis. Davis. Just, just great. We'll put a link in the show notes. Um, and some others, there's a lot of articles right now about um, hookup culture. And, and some of them are like very serious cautionary tales. And, and others are like, oh, man, I can't, you know, if I swipe anymore, I'm going to dislocate my thumb. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, you know, it's just, it's, it's, I, I was comparing it yesterday. Like, you ever go into a, 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 um, a casino and you've got like the geriatrics and they're sitting there like putting the nickels into the slot machine and it's like well any little return is like woohoo but like how's the return on investment like how long have you been sitting here you you can read these articles and i think allison said it as well in her piece allison davis is that her last name Mm -hmm. no one's last name sticks with me anymore they're all they're all gone everyone's a smith as far as i'm concerned Mm -hmm. um you know, it's like, how many hours did I spend here? Oh, and then by the way, and then I deleted it. And then I redid it. It's like, wow, this is not a good return on investment. You know, it's got to start making it just into this thing that is not, not, not pleasurable. Yeah. You know, uh, there's been a lot of sexual malaise recently. Um, the Bridget's essay, um, was a reaction to a book that I am reading um, called The Case Against the Sexual Revolution, which is by a British journalist named Louise Perry, who's about 30 years old. Um, and it's it's about to come out in America. It, it um, came out a little while ago in Britain. So there's been some, some talk about it for some time. And, um, you know, this is, a, this is a critique of this current sexual environment. And, you know, I, I think the case against the sexual revolution is like a little bit strong um, because she sees, you know, like birth control and, and gay rights as like huge advances. But the argument here is that, you know, like more progress hasn't necessarily come without trade-offs and that, you know, our culture is always in flux and there have been a lot of of ways that we have made bargains that are not working out for us. I mean, I think one of the theses of this book is that a lot of the um, cultural changes brought about by the sexual revolution were ones that served men more than women. Um, She is talking about basically that things like uh, contraception, uh, abortion, um, porn, the 
normalization of BDSM. Um, I would think she would extend this to even like open marriages, you know, all of them serve what she calls sort of this socio-sexual, which is somebody that wants a lot of sex with a lot of different people and that by and large, those kind of people are men. I, yeah, I mean, that's what we're told that, you know, men want a lot more sex than, or they want them a lot more just, what's the saying? Uh, women regret having so many sexual partners, men regret the sexual partners they didn't have, something like that. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know what it is. I mean, yeah, I, I think, it, sure. I mean, there can be a biological imperative or or whatever, a cultural imperative. Men want to bang more. I, I mean, I, I can accept that than, than women do. That's, I, I don't know. I haven't, you know, done a study on that. But I don't think that, at, I think at the end of the day, men also feel lonely. And I don't know that every random, like 150 random sexual encounters um, fills that loneliness. Uh, you know, it's, you know, it's really funny. Holy mackerel, Sarah, how many times on this show did I quote Liz Fair in her um, little podcast that she did mm-hmm. as saying that, you know, the only time that men can be vulnerable, can allow themselves to be vulnerable or is in the arms of a woman, right? So we are, Liz Fair and I are, are we're, we're friends. We follow each other on um, on Twitter. And I couldn't find the quote because I have a whole bunch of different books from her and things. And I, I I messaged her and she saw it, but she, I was like, can you tell me exactly where this is? I'm having trouble finding it. She didn't answer me. It was fine. She's a busy person. So I went, I found the passage. She doesn't say that at all. That was not what she said at all. She talked about um, how she has to be honest uh, with herself about what she needs, which very much ties into like, it's like, what do I need? Oh, I must, I'm liberated. I can do whatever I want. But what she, in, in her case, what she really wanted was she wanted a man to make her feel safe. She wanted to be cared for. She liked the idea of chivalry, which mm-hmm. is a bit what the essays we're, we're talking about now also say. I mean, Bridget said it and in, in the uh, the essay I read today on Barry's site, which is sort of a woman riffing on the book you're talking about. Like, and But I, I actually filled that in myself. I filled in myself, I guess, that the only time men can allow themselves to be completely vulnerable is in the arms of someone they are making love with. And you know what, Sarah? You know what? They call it making love for a reason because you actually do when you're, I'm not going to say doing it right, but when you're doing it in a certain way, you are making love. Now, who doesn't want love, right? Well, I guess there's few people that don't want love. But I, I know from experience, and I know you do too, that it is the case that Men will be extremely vulnerable in the arms of the one that they're making love with, and so will women. And that's what I think when you when you're looking for this kind of experience and you're looking for it on a dating app or this or that, but you're trying you're actually crafting your image so perfectly and you're you're giving exactly what you like and you're trying to sort of create the perfect sexual dynamic which really is not about being vulnerable at all right so i think that there is a dearth um of people feeling that they're getting what they want from sex maybe that's why they're avoiding sex because they're not getting the the delicious 
part of it. They're getting the the the, the cheap the buffet. junk food. The cheap buffet. Too many choices. I don't know. Nothing looks good. It's all steep table shit. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah. Um <clears throat> the I'm I have become like no phrase used to make me squirm like making love. It used yeah, to make oh, me squirm oh. so bad. Me too. I was so I was so embarrassed about it. Like I would I would have to give this terrible nervous laughter as a teenager because it's like, ah, who would say that? Who would say that? Yeah. yeah. And You're lover, fine. it was like, oh, yeah. gross. <laughs> well, lover is gross, actually. I don't know. I kind of <laughs> dig it. I think it's a little like sophisticated and European. And back, no, Sarah. I'm think I I think I've taken some lovers. I'll be honest with you. All right. Yeah. yeah. It's, 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 Sounds very like international woman of mystery to me, you know. <laughs> no, but older that's woman with my lovers. I absolutely. I remember being. I was 13 years old. I was in Martha's Vineyard with my first like little boyfriend, and he was talking to a friend of his, a girl who was a little older, and she or he used the phrase "making love," and I just started like laughing maniacally because I was so embarrassed. It was just so hideously embarrassing. But then you actually realize it's it's a real. It's an actual like can you see love? Like, well, you can have representations of love, but like, this is this like thing that floats around in the atmosphere and it's glue and it exists. Of course we know it exists. I'm suddenly remembering this essay by Dave Eggers from a million years ago in Might Magazine. If you remember that, I'm going to really date myself. This is like high nineties. Um, but he, uh, the memoirist and novelist Dave Eggers, uh, who was like a sort of sensation around the turn of the century, used to do a, a magazine called Might, uh, which was based out of San Francisco. And he wrote an essay that was called I've Never Made Love or something. Or no, I've Never Been Fucked. That's what it's called. And it would, the idea was he hated like the, the, the sort of like aggression and the, the, the sort of, I don't know, like carnivorousness of, of fucked, you know, it was just, it was so, he didn't relate to that, but he couldn't stand the phrase making love because it squicked him out. So he yeah. comes to the conclusion that the way he's going, that what he likes um, is to know someone like in the biblical sense. Oh, okay. Moses. Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> but it is, but, that, but that it is that to have sex with somebody is to sort of, to know them. Well, that's actually, it's, you know, it's, it can be, it it can be, and obviously there's times when you're like not, you're doing your best to not know that person at all and just, you know, whatever to put that up. But I, uh, yeah, so I'm writing something about sex right now and it's, uh, it's, uh, I, I don't know. I don't want to be another doomsday person. There's a lot of, it seems to me, Sarah Heppola, who, by the way, what is the name of this show? Oh my God. It's called Smoke Em If You Got Em. Yes, it is, ma'am. Um, I find that there's a bit of a doomsday thing uh, going on with yep. sex, yeah, which I don't there is. find. I mean, maybe it's a kind of natural reaction to where we've been and the sort of performative stuff. And we've now done all these things and we're going to be, you know, digisexual and we're going to be this. We're going to have 14 people and I'm going to decide on Friday at two o'clock, I'm going to suck your cock. And then that's all going to be perfect because I've made it exactly the way I want to do it. So I people say this is not the way to go. Well, yeah, I might agree with that, but I I'm not I'm not down with the 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 doomsday stuff. I just I I don't think it's useful to add that voice to the conversation. So I'm going to try not to. Uh, there was a review of the case against sexual revolution in Wes Yang Substack. Uh, it was very She's, good. I, 
Very smart. And uh, I am completely blanking on the author's name, unfortunately. That's a fine. So the um, case we will link it in the comments. But yep. one of the things she says, I mean, she, she does a good review of this book. And by the way, I think I may try to interview Louise Perry because I'm very interested in this book. And I'm still reading it. I'm still making my way through it and figuring out what I think about it. There's, there's a lot that I really agree with. I mean, there's certain things that she says... Um, that you know, she's pushing back on certain dogmatic ideas that feminism has introduced and maybe not served the greater good. You know, this book and the other book uh, that I was reading, Sex a Provocation by Christine Emba, they both have a very similar chapter headlines, one of, one of which is men and women are not the same. Uh, another one is like loveless sex is not empowering, you know? So, no. um, so the, you know, or, or, I think the other book has something that's like, you know, we want to catch feelings, you know, they're both push, pushing back on this idea that it's bad to catch feelings. Um, anyway, uh, this review said, uh, after she kind of went through some of the, the interesting ideas in the book, she said, I'm tired of hearing about how horrible it is to be a woman and how being desired is traumatic instead of thrilling. Oh my God, of course. I mean, this is just, I'm sorry. It's all fucking nonsense. It's someone comes up to you and says, you're beautiful. Oh my God, I can't believe he said that. I'm, he's objectifying me and now he's going to rape me in the elevator. I heard someone say the other day, or maybe I was reading it in one of the articles. It's like, oh my God, if some, if one, if a coworker talked to me in my, in, in the elevator, I would be like, what does he want? That's so creepy. I'm like, wow, kids. I wrote I wrote an article years ago in 2007 about this kid that got caught up in a sexting scandal. It was in Reason Magazine. He was 17. And he said to me, uh, email, the only people on email are scammers and spammers and parents. Okay. We know that young people have all these other ways to communicate or, and, and we do too. Um, that is not talking. Okay. It's not. We text, we, we, do a video. We do that. We don't talk. People are afraid to talk. The idea that you would be afraid of your coworker talking to you in an elevator is is absurd. Is that's that that's regression, basically. <sighs> yeah, I'm 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 remembering. Uh, a story that was about online dating and a lot of the young people were asking the author how she met her husband. And she actually says, that's the uh, we met in an elevator, in an it, elevator. It, and they, that. they're like, Oh, that's gross. Yeah. Yeah. That's the piece I'm talking about. Oh, okay. 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 Yeah. 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 And it's just like you, they've forgotten the the step one, sorry, step one in like being a human being is talking to the person next to you. Okay, that's how you talk in kindergarten. You talk to your parents. You talk to the lady at the supermarket. And I know some people are more chatty than others. I'm a big yacker. But like that's how you you make relationships. And the idea, wh whatever you were saying, like that, that we should avoid people that might find us or tell us we're attractive is just, I'm, I'm sorry, I, 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 that, I, I don't even understand. I don't even understand why, how people feminist or otherwise think this is is going to serve is going to serve anybody to make you more isolated to make you less receptive to your fellow man I, I don't I don't get it well we do have a lot of focus like a lot of focus on 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 damage right and I think 
you know, and, and trauma and harm and things like that. And, and maybe it's true that, that people like Bridget and me and you and previous generations came of age at a time when, you know, there wasn't maybe nearly as much attention paid to the ways that, that we were harming ourselves and we numbed ourselves to some of that. But you got up, like you fell off the bike and you got up. And that I'm finding, at least in the way it's represented, I guess, again, I'm reading these kind of doomsday things. It's like people are not even willing to get on the bike. It's like, well, I'm not going to get my driver's license because that's too, I'm just going to live here with my parents. I'm not going to like do this. None of it makes any sense. I'm not going to have kids. Did you know, this was actually in the Atlantic article from a couple of years ago, uh, talking about how young people are having less sex now correlation doesn't equal causation or however that phrase goes. I might have that backwards. There were 500,000 fewer babies born in 2017 in the United States than in 2007. That's a lot of, that, that's a lot of fewer babies. Yeah. Okay. Half, half a million. Now, does that necessarily mean that people are having less sex? No, not necessarily. People could be better about contraception or whatever, but it is telling you that people do not want to become a parent. And that's okay too. Not everybody has to be a parent, but that's a lot of people that are putting off having children, mm-hmm. uh, which is sort of just, you know, for you know, majority of people has usually been a stage of life, right? Like you do this, you're an adolescent, you're a young adult, you get a job, you get married, you have kids. And I, again, I'm not saying this is like the ideal, but it's sort of a, it's sort of a, a an evolutionary imperative, right? That most of us feel um, at a certain point and that there's a resistance to that. I think there's something to the idea that if you consider that the opposite sex means you harm at all times, even saying hello in an elevator, maybe you're not going to be quite fucking ready to be a parent. If you're scared of the person saying hello to you in the elevator, I mean, becoming a parent must be absolutely beyond the pale. In terms of 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 how how fraught that could possibly be, um, you know, I think there's all sorts of things going on with the fertility decline. You know, certainly uh, some of these people don't mean to be having kids. Some of them are like me; they aged out of having kids. Um, there is economic anxiety around it. There's all sorts of things going on with that decline. That's true. It's it's more it's it's more complicated, but it it does seem to indicate to me a reluctance to have children. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. And even uh, possibly like a like a, tra- a you know a fashionable push away from it. In other words, that and and I will tell you as somebody who is 47 without children that uh, that the life comes with many freedoms and it also comes with a, a great deal of like spinning and anxiety and you know what I, I feel like I haven't crested into the next life stage sometimes you know mm-hmm. like I never grew up and I miss the opportunity to to raise a child and go through those life stages. And I still think about uh, maybe adopting or something like that, but I've got myself in a pickle here with a creative life where I'm <laughs> supporting myself. So, you know, it's, it's, uh, gosh, it's, a, it's, I know it's hard to be a mother and I hear about it from my mother friends all the time, but, uh, I, I, well, but, you, it, but it, you know, I hear from my mom and from you and many other people, the uncommon joy and the, 
the the fulfillment that comes from that and it that is something that i i w- i i, I would have loved to have had uh we're going to link your essay here there you one you wrote for for mother's day i also i and i know that people consider me being super cuntish when i say this but i got to tell you it's not that fucking hard to be a mother okay it's just amazing yes of course sometimes they're going to be bratty and you're just like oh yeah yeah it's so hot here i can't take it and I, what are we going to have for dinner and all this but you know what it's not that hard well you don't know because you might have ha- you had a particularly easy child you know That's some true. people That's have true. much more challenging children um okay let me let me qualify this okay I, just as the terrible person that is Nancy Rommelman, am tired of hearing about how absolutely, terribly, torturously burdensome it is to be a, kid, a mother. Right, right, right. No, you know? I mean, I, it, it's true. As a culture, we're going through this thing of like, you know, sex is traumatic. Uh, motherhood traumatic. is so hard. Uh, you know, it sucks to be a woman. And, you oh. know, and that is a, ba- you know, it's like water that we swim in and then it informs our experience of going through the world. And, um, you know, I, I don't, I don't know. Yeah. Okay. Let us, uh, let's, let's jump o- over to something very sweet too. Let's talk about some people that apparently really, really, really enjoyed fucking each other. They did enjoy oh fucking each other. God, this is the best part of this documentary. We are talking about an HBO documentary called The Last Movie Stars. It is about uh, uh, Joanne Woodward and Paul Newman, who were married, I guess, like in the 1950s. They were both successful uh, film stars and also theater at that point. She more than he at that time. But one thing I certainly didn't know about is um, is how much they reveled in each other's bodies uh, to the point where I mean he so it's an interesting it's an interesting it's it's a documentary it's made by the actor Ethan Hawke um, he's got a whole bunch of of, of talking heads actors I uh, probably some singers in there um, what had happened is that years ago. Uh, uh, Paul Newman and John Woodward and a billion other people in their lives were interviewed by someone that was going to be writing this sort of massive, you know, end all be all memoir, I guess. And then uh, Paul Newman, it, it, who is now dead, and Joanne Woodward died too, I'm pretty sure. Uh, I, look, I don't really know. I think so. Um, Paul Newman burned all the tapes. Okay, but as it turned out, because they were old school, they'd had them all transcribed, and there were just thousands of pages of um, of these interviews. So Ethan Hawke has different actors reading the parts, but you don't really see them reading them. They're sort of off camera. And George Clooney is doing uh, Paul Newman, and um, Laura Linney is doing Joanne Woodward, and it's very interesting um, how they've set it up. Are you looking? Have you found out for me if I am correct that she has? She's actually still alive. Oh, thank um, God. I'm so sorry. It's That's okay. Um, the the movie, the documentary leaves it a little open-ended and confusing because they touch on the fact that she started to get Alzheimer's in 2007. Oh, I'm not at that point yet. See, I'm only two episodes in. I think it's oh, six. Oh, you're only two episodes in. Oh, it's yeah, six I'm episodes, sorry. girl. I've been, yeah. I've been on the road, lady. Yeah, okay. Um, yeah, sorry. Spoiler alert. Yeah, she's still alive. And, <laughs> okay. um, you know, so yeah, that you'll, you'll get to that part. So there's just several different times. I mean, at least three times where 
they have Paul Newman, it's being voiced again by Clooney, saying, you know, and and okay, Paul Newman had already been married. He had three children. He wound up with Joanne Woodward for five years before they got married and he left to, you know, uh, his his wife. Or I guess and he left to be clear. He was yeah. They're having a five year affair, which is something that I didn't really understand. Paul Newman got married early. He yeah. was married to an a actress named Jackie Witt, and he starts an affair with this you know precociously talented, full blooded woman, Joanne Woodward, and they are having an affair for five years before he leaves his wife and then marries her. Um, so I'm, I'm going to botch the quote, but he said something like, you know, Joanne was the person that made me a sexual creature. Like we, and there's something about like, you know, in the car, in the bar, in the woods, in the, in the bedroom, like they just wanted to fuck. And that's, I got, I love this so much because again, it's not just that you're making love. You're like, you're having this crazy conversation that only you and this person understand. And then you like walk out into the world with what you're, what you've gleaned and then you do it again and you can't like keep your hands off each other. And one point they're already married and he comes home and she's in the driveway, like in clothes and like, she's got this bed frame that she got at a thrift store and a new mattress that she's painting it. He's like, what are you doing? You know, baby cakes. And she's like, oh, I'm just making this and I'm going to put it in the fuck hut. Like <laughs> the they, fuck it's hut. this little thing that they're just, and their kids are like, we never understood like why our parents had two bedroom doors. The inside had this giant bolt and it's, I got to tell you, I absolutely love this part of their trajectory that that is the thing that was an, just an amazing glue besides the fact that they were also, you know, acting at an incredibly high level. Oh my God. And uh, last night's episode, the second episode. So she was actually the more successful one. Mm -hmm. She had won an Oscar and she'd been on Broadway and she'd acted with Brando and she was like really more well-known than he was, but he was sort of like gaining. And then his star just took off. He made HUD and it was just like kablamo. And I haven't seen HUD by the way, but I, I think I'd like to. Uh, and, um, She's home now. They have one or maybe two children at this point. So she's she's very honest. She's like, you know, there's this dynamic where, you know, you're you're home with the kids because someone's got to be home with the kids. And then you're like, well, why aren't I working? And then when you're working, you're like, why, well, why aren't I home with the kids? But she's being interviewed at one point and, and the guy says, well, so, you know, during this time, and she's still quite young at this point, the kids are little, did you ever uh, feel resentful? And she's like, Oh, yes, <laughs> which I loved yeah. because usually it's like the stoic wife, like, oh, no, I'm just watching. Before. She's like, oh, fuck. Yeah, I did. Um, anyway, it's um, it's a beautiful, beautiful uh, uh, little piece. It might go on, at least for me, a little too long, like looking at each individual movie. Like, I don't know mm -hmm. if I need 20 minutes of whatever the one one with with uh, Sidney Portier and it was just like on and on and on. But it's an interesting examination about when we started this talking about fame, like how much do we want to know about our, um, our celebrities? Well, it was a different day at that point. And I don't know, it's 50 years later and I'm sure having fun watching, you know, what their lives were like besides their work. Well, one of the, the cool things about watching it as it unwinds over six episodes is that, you know, yes, they start out as this, um, you know, incredibly attractive, talented couple on the rise. But there is a lot of strife as they move through these years. You know, certainly the first big challenge is the extent to which his career takes off and hers becomes grounded by motherhood. 
And, you know, Ethan Hawke has a line that says, you know, many of us lose our dreams, but most of us don't have partners whose dreams come true over and over again. Um, You know, but I as it goes on, look, this uh, they became something of an emblem for a sort of perfect marriage, a kind of Hollywood perfect marriage. They were partners. They were they stayed together. They, They look one of the reasons I think they're children wanted to do this story was to pull back the curtains a little bit on the fact that this was not a perfect marriage at all. There are a lot of challenges that come in in the form of Paul Newman's very heavy drinking, um, her... I, I don't know how much... I don't want to really spoil it because... The, the, yeah, the spoilers. What's that? <laughs> Give us a few spoilers. Okay, well, like, Paul's alcoholism, there's, uh, you know, let me just say that, like, when somebody, this this relationship started with a five-year affair, when mm-hmm. somebody has introduced to you that they're going to cheat on their wives for five years, they might be likely to do that again. Mm-hmm. Okay. They might have shown you something about themselves. Mm-hmm. That's the, was that old phrase, like, why would you marry a man that cheats on his wife? Oh, well, there you go. Um, there are problems with ch- the kids. And I, I don't want to say more about that because that was something I didn't know about. And it about was... Scott, about his Scott? About his son Scott? His son Scott, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I know about that. You know about yeah. that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so there's a lot of loss. There's a lot of anger and resentment. Uh, there's a lot... One of the things I like about this is that I don't think we see a lot of portraits of long marriages. By mm-hmm. which I mean that a lot of the marriage stories we see are the beginnings of things. We mm-hmm. see how people come together. We see them in the fuck hut. Mm-hmm. We see the great, you know, cresting wave of their love. And then the movie ends or the story ends. But the business of long term love and its compromises and its disappointments and its sometimes agonizing, agonizing phases of distance uh, are we don't always get to see that. You know, then we get to see, sometimes we'll see the spectacular end. You know, everything went bad, you know, but somebody that, a couple that stays together over all these years, I found it very profound, very moving. And the way that they kept art and creativity and exploration and curiosity at the center of their relationship, they were both, you know, kind of always pushing themselves and finding new things, I found very inspirational. What do you think, um, I mean, one interesting thing about the documentary is that it's made clearly during the pandemic because everybody, Ethan Hawke is to talk, is talking to everyone, um, on Zoom. Right. Um, and what's his name? Um, oh, yeah, yeah, I, uh, the actor who did that movie Moon. Oh, Sam Rockwell. Sam, Sam Rockwell. Rockwell with his crazy <laughs> hair. It's, I freaking love Sam Rockwell, by oh the way. Oh my God, I love him so I much. I love too. him more than love, you. And I, love. I loved him first because I identified him a very long time ago. But he is just sitting there with this like unbelievable bedhead. It's a uh, four-inch cowlick in the back. Yeah, it's fantastic. Um, I wonder, you know, there's one Part now we know I I know very little about Uma Thurman and um and uh, uh, Ethan Hawke's uh, breakup except that they did break up a number of years ago they had children they were married they had children but there was this 
moment when he's asking um, one of the daughters that Paul Newman had in his first marriage, he had two, he had two girls and a boy in his first marriage and then three girls with Joan Woodward. He's asking one of the daughters, I think her name is Stephanie maybe. And um, he's like, so did you like, um, did you carry a lot of anger hmm. toward your dad when he left? I was like, well, that's an interesting question. Yes. <laughs> you know? And then I wonder, I mean, yeah, I, I have to give it to, you know, during the pandemic, we all, you know, like I created Paloma Media during the pandemic. Like I, you know, people, people need to create, like they have to, like we're, we're going to metastasize and that he created this, I think is great. You know, he, he's making art uh, and people are like, yes, I want to, I want to like hitch onto my caboose onto this train. But do you think besides homage and curiosity and illumination, is there like You've seen the whole thing now. Mm -hmm. Is there another reason why he was making this? I mean, I think the question of his relationship with his wife, what uh, motherhood might have done to her career, um, how he behaved um, is lurking in the background of this entire movie. In the later episodes, you will briefly meet both his daughters who served as um, like sort of consultants on this film. They -hmm. were helping him with it. So you see some of the conversations they're having with him. I've seen one, Maya, I think is her name. Yes. Maya Hawk. Yeah. 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 I I, I was like, oh, it's got to be. Well, this is interesting, Sarah. We started or we mentioned um, uh, Richard Ford's The Sports Writer. Why did I like the story told the way it was? Because there was the story that was the animating story pulsing mm-hmm. painful blood tube underneath. And then there was how he was telling the story on the top. So I wonder if there's a bit of a correlation here with Ethan Hawke and telling this story. I think that's right. Yeah. All right. All right. Hey, um, Sarah. Nancy. What's in your hot box? What's in my hot box? Hot, hot box. I knew you were going to ask me that question. <laughs> wow. Okay. So this is kind of a weird answer. Sure. But in my hot box this week is playing guitar. Sarah. Yes. I have been playing my guitar for the first time in like a year or something like that. So I taught myself, um, well, I also took lessons. I learned to play guitar early in my sobriety. And I found it to be like, like a really wonderful way to just unwind when I was stressed out. Like I was having a lot of trouble when I first quit drinking with like, what do you do at the end of the day? Like, how do you transition? Like yeah. what? Cause I, I was so used to that, like, like drink, you know? Yeah. And so, and so what do you do? And I found, um, the act to be very relaxing. I like singing, um, more than I really like playing. It was kind of like, in some ways it was kind of like, just like a, like a karaoke machine for me. Um, (laughs) But I hadn't done it in a long time. And a few, and I've just been, this has not been my best summer. Like I've had some rough weeks and months and I picked up my guitar. It was dusty. I had to like literally like dust it off. Tune it. Tune it, (laughs) tune that baby. And uh, yeah, it was really, really great and it was just this reminder like that joy is free yes it is but you also have to like you have to 
focus is the wrong word. You have to like walk into it. You have to it walk doesn't into just come it. and knock at your door. You gotta like, Sarah, what what songs or a song were you playing? Okay, so I have forgotten a lot of the songs that I knew, so I'm gonna have to start teaching myself again. But yeah. the one song that I do know just by heart um, is the song Downtown Train by Tom Waits, which was um, a lot of people know because uh, Rod Stewart actually covered it. It's a beautiful song. Uh, and it's it's just like a... a yeah. Last night, another yellow moon has punched a hole in the nighttime. I just, I love it. I love that song and I love singing it. And uh, I also was uh, playing uh, Don't Dream It's Over because I had the, I had the sheet oh, music yeah. love, out. Love, and so that love. was really fun. Uh, who doesn't and, love that song? Yeah, that's, that's, that's a great song. Everybody. Um, I have been reading what's in my hot box is actually something I, one of our, our, uh, listeners recommended. We were talking about just wanting a novel to kind of fall into. And someone recommended Heat and Light by, how do you say her last name? Jennifer Hyde? Hyde or Hague or, yeah, I don't yeah. know. Um, so I was actually away. Uh, I grabbed this book at a really um, uh, great bookstore uh, in Tulsa called Magic City, um, which is owned by the guy who's the director of C communication at the Philbrook Museum in Tulsa, which is something I cannot recommend highly enough and which I wrote about last week. We'll put a link here. Guys, definitely head over to the show notes. We've always got some cool and cool visual things over there. Anyway, I grabbed the book and I can be impatient with novels. I can be impatient with everything, Me TV too. shows, people, but the, just like, I don't want to like just sit there and watch you move pretty words around on, on the page. Okay. This book, I, first of all, I, I, and, and Sarah, most writers that I know, most good writers, you need to hear your sentences. Like you have to hear it. If I can't hear what my sentence and then my paragraph and my, and my, my, my article sounds like I can't, I can't do it. It's got to have a sonic quality. And I think I've said on this podcast before I read someone, I don't remember what writer said, said it, that you should be able to tap your foot mm. through the entire book. I have never read a writer who has that down as well as she does. The sentences are short. They are potent, every one. They link together. And this story is racing along. I, I, I had the experience when we talked about the corrections last time that I was like running next to Jonathan Franz and like trying to keep up with the story. I have the same feeling with this book. I love it so much. It's about fracking. And when I mentioned this to someone that I'm reading this novel about fracking, someone said, which was just great, like, isn't every novel about fracking? God, that's true. God damn it. It's amazing. And I'm reading it really quickly. And I usually don't read novels quickly. I'm only in the middle of it now. I had to jump off because I had to write. But I really look forward to getting back to it today. And Sarah, correct me if I'm wrong, but you also have been reading it. I have been reading it too. I started first, in fact. I knew you yeah. were going to put this in your hot box. I didn't, I didn't use it. Um, <laughs> it's so good. You know, one of the things that I was looking for was something that had that immersive quality where you're like uh, every, like this has so many characters and each time you're introduced to a new character and you kind of sink into their lives, it's so compelling and it's just moving right along and you're exactly write about it. Um, it is about fracking in rural Pennsylvania, which is not a subject at all <laughs> I happen to be interested in. I mean, I, I really was just sort of like, I don't know that I'm going to get 
through this, but uh, it, honestly, it's, it's terrific. I'm halfway through it now and I love it. And, um, yeah, I'm so grateful that it was recommended. Yeah, we're, we're kicking around a little idea if we both finish sort of at the right time and we have, um, and we can make it work. Maybe we'll do a little, uh, we'll do a little book club with you guys and do a little zoom and talk about it if you guys are interested, because it is a highly recommended book. Um, and we have been speaking for one hour, 31 minutes and 34 seconds, which is about our, um, our time. I'm going to get off uh, here today and do some writing. What, what's in uh, what's in your future today? Sarah? I have to do some writing and then I'm going to a friend's uh, daughter's birthday party. One of my best friends, uh, Jennifer, has a daughter, Allie, who's turning, I think, was she 16 today? Sweet. Um, I'm also going to do a little baking today or make some kind of yummy dessert for tonight. So um, guys, thank you so much for joining us. Um, oh, uh, Obviously, subscribe if you haven't already. Um, hit those, tell your friends about it. If you want to pay for a subscription, we're also going to have a new special little button on the show notes. So go check that out. You can see what that's about. And um, I'll see you later, Sarapla. Bye. Bye. So old in the night time, yes I climb to the window and down to the street I'm shining like a new dime Downtown trends of food For those Brooklyn girls They try so hard to break out of their little worlds Now you wave your hand and the scattered light Nothing that will ever capture your heart They're just thorns without the rules Be careful of them in the dark Oh, if I were